Well, good morning, church. How's everybody doing today? How's everybody doing today? Um, for me, I know it's good to, to be with God's people this morning. I'm excited to preach God's word, and I hope that this week is going well for you all. Um, and if it hasn't, I just want you to know that you've made the best decision by being with the saints this morning. I think it's nothing like, you know, when you don't feel like coming to service, and then you come to service after a rough week or a time of suffering, and you just feel the encouragement of the saints. And so I'm just thankful for you who, who might have struggled to get here this morning. So um, once again, I want to thank the pastors for yet another opportunity to preach God's word. Thank you so much. Um, and family, this morning I have the privilege of kicking off a series titled Worship and the Splendor of Holiness. This series will take place in between our first Peter series, and, and I hope it will help us to focus our attention on worship and holiness as we meditate on the goodness of God. So with all that being said, let me go before the throne of grace because I need the Lord's help uh, to speak to us through his word this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. Lord, sanctify us by your truth, Lord God. Lord, as we hear from your word, as we hear from you, Lord God, I pray that this just wouldn't be something that we take and kind of eat and uh, be done with it uh, for today, but that we would hold on to your word throughout the week. Um, for, for the rest of our lives, Lord God, I pray that we would have a greater, uh, this kind of vision of you, that we would esteem you highly, Lord, Lord God, at the conclusion uh, of, your, of the preaching of your word. And so, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs> Michael Jackson and Prince. Now, I know, you know, that alone has some of y'all, like, what the heck is he about to talk about? But just stay with me. Two cultural icons that had one thing in common. Despite the, the controversy around him, I, I ain't afraid to admit that I am actually a Michael Jackson guy. I mean, we, think we got things like human nature, right? A timeless classic that, that younger generations still sing to this day. Right, y'all want me to sing it? No? Okay, no problem. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, y'all. Prince was also an incredible musician. Um, and I'm and a talented, talented artist, but, but the truth is, he still ain't touching Mike. Uh, but I digress, uh, no, no need to, to, to debate about it this morning. Uh, but for decades, critics have put these two amazing artists against one another. Similar to the dynamic between players like LeBron and Kobe, or, or hip-hop artists like Tupac and Biggie, or, or for the younger generation, uh, Kendrick and J. Cole. But the one thing that all these artists and players have in common is that they all have at least one common influence that they accredit their style to. And for Prince and MJ, that common influence was the one and only James Brown. Listen to what Mike had to say about James Brown. He says this, when I saw him move, I was mesmerized. I've never seen a performer like James Brown, and right then and there I knew that was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. James Brown, I shall miss you and I love you so much. Thank you for everything. Now listen to what Prince had to say about James Brown. He says, James Brown played a big influence on my style. I didn't know this, but when I was 10 years old, my stepdad put me on stage with him, and I danced a little bit until the bodyguard took me off. <laughs> Again, two major influential artists that have sold millions of records, and yet neither one of them ceased to let the world know where their musical influence came from. Brothers and sisters, just as, as Prince and Mike had one common influence when it came to their artistry. 
we as believers also have one common influence when it comes to everything that we say, do, or possess in our lives, and that is the God of the universe. I'm inclined to believe that we as humans are often quick to give other humans their just due, their praise, and their flowers, and yet I find it interesting that we can either be slow or neglectful to do this with God. Church, if, if, we, if we can be so quick to attribute influence and accolades to finite people, how much more should we be ascribing all things that we say, do, or possess to an infinite God? But it's important to know that God is not just any common influence. What makes God distinct from any other influence in existence is his holiness. So here's the overarching point for our time this morning. Ascribing holiness to God should be at the center of our worship. Ascribing holiness to God, telling him that he's set apart, he's unlike anyone, should be at the center of our worship. Church, God is set apart and unlike anyone or anything in the entire cosmos. Imperfect people, you know, influencers, are no match for the one and only perfect God. Time and time again, God has graciously proven us, proven to us why he should be rightfully ascribed as supreme over all creation. And still, we often forget. So my hope for us is that as we walk through Psalm 29, our, our hearts will be moved to esteem God in the way that he ought to be esteemed. But before we jump into the psalm, I want to give us some brief context surrounding this passage. Uh, for those who don't know, the word psalms in Hebrew can be translated to mean praise. And in the English translation, uh, the, the, the word psalms taken from the Septuagint can be best translated to mean songs of praise. The book of Psalms consists of both hymns and prayers, and this book teaches us how to commune with God in every circumstance of life, which is essential uh, for, for the reason for why there are 150 psalms. The psalms walks through every circumstance you go through. Many theologians believe that each psalm was written with the intent of being used to worship God in song. So as we approach Psalm 29, we see David here imploring us with a call to worship. This entire psalm is about pushing us to praise. It appears that at this time, David was captivated uh, by a thunderstorm that was coming from the Mediterranean Sea into Israel. So he decided to use this storm as a way to poetically display the holiness of God. So here we are. David, he just finished up praying to the Lord in, in chapter 28, pleading with him not to include uh, him with the consequences of the wicked. And in the midst of that, he calls God his rock and his strength. So David goes to say, say this in Psalm 29. He says, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord above the vast water. The voice of the Lord in power. The voice of the Lord in splendor. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice, I mean, the Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strip the woodlands bare. In his temple, in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned king 
forever. The Lord gives his people strength. The Lord blesses his people with peace. So to help us dig a little deeper into this passage, I want to talk about three things that should help us to ascribe holiness to the Lord. Point number one, you see this in verses one through two, the Lord deserves his praise. The Lord deserves his praise. Point number two, in verses three through nine, the Lord displays his power. The Lord displays his power. And then our last point in verses 10 and 11, the Lord delivers his promise. The Lord delivers his promise. So the Lord deserves his praise. The Lord displays his power. And the Lord delivers his promise. Point number one, the Lord deserves his praise. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord in strength, a glory in strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Psalmist starts off this passage by commanding heavenly beings to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength that only he is due. I think I like how one theologian puts it. He says that this psalm starts in heaven. The term heavenly beings here is translated to mean sons of God, which in this case is best understood to be angelic beings. I mean, angels. You see, angels in heaven have unlimited access to God. And not only that, they have the privilege to be able to witness God's creation. I believe this alone gives them no choice but to praise God. They get to see the things that we don't get to see. They get, they get the behind-the-scenes look on how God operates. And also, they were, they were created with the purpose of worshiping the Lord at all times. And they don't, they don't do it because of what he's done for them, but out of a sincere reverence for who he is. We just read Isaiah 6. We see them declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. And just as the angels make it their duty to worship the Lord at all times, how much more should we? We were created in his image. And just like the angels, we were created to worship. The psalmist uses the phrase ascribe to the Lord three times, which should communicate a sense of urgency to do so. I think the term uh, and the term ascribe here can be best translated as to, to acknowledge that one has an attribute. And to be honest, we're just acknowledging what's already there. Our worship doesn't make the Lord more holy. He's holy regardless, but our worship acknowledges his holiness. Then in verse 2, David goes on to implore us to worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Uh, the word splendor here means kind of God's separateness or, or his uniqueness. And in saying all this, it's almost as if, if David knew that we often think of ourselves way too highly. I think all of us at one point in time, and even now, have craved worship for ourselves. I mean, when people praise us, it makes us feel good about ourselves. It, it, it massages our, our insecurities and our self-esteem so much so that some of us become addicted to it. We want people to see us. We want to be ascribed the kind of set-apartness that is rightfully, rightfully reserved for God. Church, the truth is that nothing originates from us, which means that we have absolutely no reason to expect worship for ourselves. It also appears at this time, the people of Israel, much like today, had a praise problem. I mean, picture God's chosen people, the people that he told that he would prosper them, that he would make them a mighty nation, the people that he said he would dwell with forever, withholding worship from the one who chose them. And it's not just the people of Israel that do it. We do this as well. Constantly, 
constantly withholding worship for the one who, who changes up, who, who, who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And they were not only neglecting to give God the glory that he rightfully deserves, but they were instead giving, giving this praise to some other pagan gods during this time, much like us as well. It's clear that David wants his readers to acknowledge the Lord for his attributes of glory and strength. And this is necessary for us to do because of who he is. Simple. We ought to praise the Lord simply because he is the Lord. We should not need something for us, or we should not need God to do something for us just for us to praise him. We should not only seek to praise him circumstantially, I mean, either when, when things are going really well or, or when things are going really bad. We should not be giving praise to worthless idols that will one day perish. We should be more angel-like in praising the eternal God just for who he is, period. So my question for you, ARC, is, is what has been the center of your worship lately? What other gods have you been ascribing worth to? Is it, is it finances? Is it good, is it good things like, like your spouse or, or children or, or your job or academics? Don't get me wrong. These things are amazing things to celebrate. But once they become the center of your worship, they become idols. Truth is, whether you realize it or not, we all worship something. And many times, we fail to attribute our worship to God. So we have to ask ourselves, who or what is on the throne of your life right now? I know for me, I'm just going to be a little transparent. Uh, this might seem like a funny example, but it, re it really isn't. I mean, I mean, you probably can relate to this too, but my phone and social media have been the kind of object of my worship. I mean, just think about it. When you wake up, what's the first thing you do? Start scrolling, check your phone, whatever. That's the, th that's the first thing I do. When I go to sleep, that's the same thing I do. Scroll for about 30 minutes. Brittany might say an hour or so, but it's about 30 minutes or so. Uh, <laughs> look at me. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to make a case for why it's not an idol, but it is. Uh, but yeah, so that's one thing that I struggle to, to not worship as much as I worship the Lord. And, and I don't know what it is for you. It could be social media. It could be your phone. It could be people. But whatever it is, I know that my worship for God or to God is not where it ought to be. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe your heart is hardened towards God this morning. Maybe suffering may have caused you to think that God isn't worthy of worship. Whatever the circumstance may be, I want you to know that there is grace for where you are and hope for where you can be in regards to your, your worship. And if you're struggling with this this morning, some, sometime this week or, or when we get out of service, take some time to pray to the Lord and ask that he make your heart more worshipful. We have access to him in that way that we can ask and plead with him and he'll answer. Church, the good news is that we can all look forward to a day that is painted so vividly in Revelation 7, which tells us that we will one day be gathered around the throne, much like angels in Isaiah 6, worshiping without the threat of sin getting in the way of our worship. Revelation 7 says this, after this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who was seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and along with the elders and the four living creatures that fell face down before the throne, and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength 
to be our God forever and ever. Amen. Y'all, that's the picture that we can look forward to, to worship God without the threat of sin in our lives. And we should be longing for that type of worship, no matter where you are today. Which brings me to my next point. The Lord displays his power. The Lord displays his power. The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord above the vast water. The voice of the Lord in power. The voice of the Lord in splendor. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. In his temple, all cry glory. Here David paints for us a vivid picture of the holiness of God using the image of a thunderstorm to convey to us the power of God. I mean, it's almost as if David has put it together a masterpiece for all of us to admire. It seems as though he wanted the power of God to captivate our hearts and minds through art form. He did just that by focusing our attention on God's voice. The phrase, the voice of the Lord, is used seven times in this psalm, which again should signal uh, to us that the author wants us to pay close attention to this. From this, I gather that one of the key ways that God aims to communicate his power to us is by his voice. By his voice, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. By his voice, he spoke and things came into existence, according to Genesis 1. He is the only one, the only one that can ever speak things into existence, by the way. By his voice, his word was given to us that, so that we may be equipped for every good thing. 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us that he breathed out his word for us. By his voice, he, he will judge all of creation and signal to the son that it's time for his return, according to Matthew 24, 36. ARC, it is by his voice that his power is made known to us. And God's power is not mutually exclusive with his presence. He, he's powerful and near to us. We, we couldn't hear his voice if he was too far from us. And the primary way that we hear his voice today is through the reading of his word. The power of the voice of God can be found through the reading of his word. And just a quick note on this. Um, when you feel like God's voice is silent in your life, um, you should wonder how much your Bible has been opened. And I'm not saying this like you're going to hear some audible voice. or I mean, which is possible. I think the Lord can do whatever. But most times, most times we hear God speaking to us as the spirit illuminates his word in our lives. So going back to verse 5, David paints us the, the first scene of this masterpiece using the, the thunderstorm. He starts by talking about the relationship between the voice of the Lord and the waters that are under his command. He says that the voice of the Lord is above the waters and that his glory thunders above the vast waters. Uh, according to some scholars, the term waters here is often used as a symbol for mankind. Uh, Isaiah 57, 20 says this, but the wicked are like the storm-tossed sea for it cannot be still. In, in Revelation 17, 15, the many waters can be seen as peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So, so I think what these verses should tell us is that there is nothing and no one that can escape the voice of God. All of mankind moves at the sound of his voice, even when they don't acknowledge him for who he is. Non-believers move at the sound of his voice. He created them, 
And though they, they may not believe in him, nothing that they do is outside of the scope of his voice. I think that's powerful and kind of sobering to think about that God is that powerful that no matter if you, do, you follow him or not, he, you're still under the power of his voice. That, that, that just shows us the gravitas of his voice. God's voice is the ultimate display of his, sovereign, his sovereignty over creation. David then goes on to paint another picture for us. He says that the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars and shatters the cedars of Lebanon. Lebanon was known for its many cedar trees. I mean, they possessed the strongest and most amazing trees in all of ancient Israel. Trees would average about 120 feet when they were fully grown, and they were regularly used as a source for resources for things like like palaces and ships and temples and things like that. I mean, Lebanon was, you know, it was essential to the livelihood of Israelites. David continues saying that God makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a, like, like a young wild ox. Syrian is also known as Mount Hermon, and Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain in Lebanon. So both the cedars in Lebanon and Mount Hermon is seen as the greatest display of God's creation in and around Israel. So I think what David is trying to convey to us is that God's power, God's voice, is so great that he can bring the most majestic objects in man's eyes to a lowly position. One theologian puts it this way. He says, everything that was thought to be stately could be humbled, and everything that was, that, that was thought to be uh, huge can be shaken. Again, these, things, these are the things in Israel that, that appear to be immovable, yet the, the voice of the Lord shook them. I mean, do you feel the gravitas of that? Like, does that cause you to be amazed by the power of God this morning? God has the power to do what he wants with whoever and whatever he wants when he wants. I'm reminded of, of you know, in ancient history, things of like Pompeii and, and the Roman Empire and the decline of those type of things. I mean, I think those type of things kind of remind us just of who God is. There is nothing too big for him to humble. And as tragic things like uh, earthquakes and pandemics and natural disasters may be, I don't want to be insensitive to those things, but I believe that God may allow them just so that we can be reminded of who he is. And the truth is that we need to be reminded. Too often we forget the power of God. Too often we shrink God into an image that we've conceptualized for ourselves. Too often do we exchange the, the creator for the things that he's created. We need to know that God is in a class of his own. We need to know that the most you know, important thing or person in creation that you could think of pale in comparison to the living God. And I know you probably heard this before, but our hearts are idle factories. And many times, God has to let us know who the true manufacturer is. So ARC, what have you thought or, or made bigger than God in your life today? Has the voice of God become an afterthought in your life? Have you thought to, to minimize the power of God in an attempt to make him fit your own agenda? Brothers and sisters, let's not wait to ascribe holiness to God only when he does, does something catastrophic or cataclysmic. But may our constant disposition to be to revere God. So in the next three verses, seven through nine, David paints yet another picture of the power of the voice of the Lord. He says this, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The, the voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. 
the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the wilderness bare in all his temple cried glory. So continuing with this image of a storm, he says the voice of the Lord flashes like flames of fire and that he shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. His voice even makes the deer give birth. And as a result, all in the Lord's temple cry glory. So the term flashes of fire, I mean flames of fire here, can be best translated as, as lightning from a thunderstorm. David uses the images of, uh, or the image of lightning to give us a clear picture of the voice of the God. And the term shakes here means to tremble with fear. So this psalm gives us a clear picture of creation itself experiencing the power of the voice of God. And the response is fear. Not, not a scared, kind of timid or frantic type of fear, but a reverential type of fear. The voice of the Lord should cause us all to be in awe of him. And his temple, which in this context of this psalm could be best understood to be heaven, all, which here he's talking about the heavenly beings again, the angels, uh, cry out glory. You see, what David is trying to get us to see is that after witnessing the power of the voice of the Lord in such striking images, there should be only one response for us, and that's worship. And our idea of worship cannot just be limited to singing a few songs and kind of getting emotional after, right, the endorphins are going. But according to Romans 12:1, our worship should be with our entire being. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing in God. For this is your true worship. ARC, holy living is a form of worship. Living our lives in obedience to God is how we worship him properly. And we can, we can throw our hands and sing loudly, and yet our hearts be far from him. And many times, many times, sin keeps us from worshiping God in his fullness. Although some of us, you know, you know me included, probably need to be singing more loudly and expressively, uh, but our hearts are what God truly cares about. God cares about the condition of our hearts and the content of our character rather than the position of our hands. So the real question is, how is your worship when people are not looking? Is your worship disconfined to Sunday gatherings? Or are you worshiping with your entire being throughout the week? ARC, may the voice of the Lord be at the center of your worship. And may this cause you to be in awe of him constantly. May we all cry out glory as we recognize the power of God. Because the truth is, God will get his glory from us at the end of the day. There will be a day that we all will cry glory, either willingly or forcefully. I think we, we would all rather cry out this knowing that we will be with him, with him forever rather than crying this out knowing that we will be apart from him forever. Philippians 2 said, man, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord. And this brings me to my last point. The Lord delivers his promise. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned king forever. The Lord gives his people strength. The Lord blesses his people with peace. David ends this psalm by painting for us one final picture of God's position and the position of his people as well. 
One theologian says this, the closing word of this psalm is like a rainbow arching over all, like peace over a storm. David says the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The flood that David is talking about could either be Noah's flood that took place in Genesis 8, I mean 6 through 8, or the waters at creation, which is talked about uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 7. But regardless of which flood is being highlighted here, what we need to be focusing on is where God is positioned. God sits comfortably above what most say is one of the most powerful forces of the world, a flood. None of us can sit comfortably above a flood, but God can. That, that picture alone should prompt us to ascribe holiness that is due his name. David also says that God is positioned as king forever. That should give us great comfort to know that earthly kings rule and reign, but it's only for a moment. God's reign lasts forever. And because of that, he is the only king, the only king that we ought to be devoted to. He has the final word. Lord. And as we come to the end of this psalm, David tells us that what God is committed to giving to those that belong to him. Strength and peace. We don't have to be strong because he gives us his strength. We don't have to, to be in control because he gives us peace in the midst of chaos. We, we can trust him for, the things, for these things and worship him rather than trying to manufacture them for ourselves. But what I want to turn your attention to is two key words here in this last verse. His people. Which means that lasting strength and lasting peace are only reserved for those who belong to him. Well, how do you know if you, you are his, if you belong to him? You know you belong to God when you put your faith in his son. And if you're not yet a Christian, I would urge you to do so this morning. God created us with the intent of, of us being with him forever. We were meant to, to be in perfect harmony with God, worshiping him forever. But what happened is that sin caused us to be at odds with God. We disrupted our relationship with him by worshiping the creation over the creator. And as a result, sin entered into the world and tainted everything within it, even us ourselves. And for centuries, we attempted to try and build this relationship back to where it once was with God, but nothing seemed to work. So God sent his only son for us to be a bridge between us and God to restore the relationship that we once had with him. Jesus came from the comforts of heaven to dwell with us, and he lived a sinless life, and then he died the death that our sin deserved. He was buried and resurrected, defeating sin and death, and now reigns at the right hand of the Father. And because of this, we no longer have to work to repair the relationship that we have with God. Jesus did the work, and now all you have to do is to repent and believe and put your faith in Christ, admitting that you were wrong and that you had violated God's commands and believe in Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the one who holds all power and authority in his hands, the one who came to rescue us uh, from a life that was destined for destruction. And it is then and only then that we can experience the peace and the strength that is talked about in the last verses of this psalm. So brothers and sisters, if you're not yet a Christian, I would urge you to take God um, seriously. He offers you an unshakable peace, and he offers you strength that is found in him. Brothers and sisters, God promises strength and peace for his own, and if you may not feel like that is the case now, you will experience the best version of this for eternity.
Revelation 21, verses 3 through 6 says this, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief and crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Y'all, God promises lasting peace for us that is found in heaven. So we all have one common influence, and that is the God of the universe. Everything we say, do, or possess must be ascribed to him, and our response should be worship. My prayer is that we as a church, both local and universal, will be utterly committed to ascribing holiness to the Lord and keeping him at the center of our worship. And as we do this, may we keep in mind that the Lord deserves his praise, that he would display his power both now and later, and that the Lord has, is, and will always deliver on his promises. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are lofty, you are far above us, um, and that we can we have access to you. Lord, we thank you that your voice um, is found in your word, and you speak to us through your word, Lord God. We thank you. We praise you for this, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.